Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Professor Samuel Isakarov. Uh, Dr. Samuel Isakarov is an American law professor at the University of New York. His scholarly work focuses on constitutional law, voting rights, and civil procedure. And today, he'll be speaking with us about a wonderful book he published with Oxford University Press called Democracy Unmoored. Populism and Corruption of Popular um, Sovereignty. Samuel, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's a fascinating topic. Everybody's talking about how democracy is being eroded in across the world. They're talking about rise of nationalism or populism. But before we talking, we just start talking about these topics, would you please introduce yourself briefly and tell us about your background, how you became interested in law and in this particular topic, and what made you write this book and choose this specific topic? Certainly. Uh, my name is Samuel Zakharoff. I am the Reese Professor of Constitutional Law at uh, New York University School of Law. Before teaching at NYU, I was a professor uh, at uh, Columbia Law School and before that at the University of Texas School of Law. Um, I graduated in 1983 from Yale Law School and have been a practicing lawyer and more notably a law professor uh, since that time. Um, uh, I came to law uh, in the way that one does, uh, sir, uh, by, you know, just lack by interest in some fields and some questions of American history that always seem to involve lawyers. Um, I do not come from a legal background. Uh, I was born in Argentina and uh, I'm an immigrant to the United States. I uh, do not have law in the family, but uh, it has become uh, a vocation, an avocation. Um, I did not anticipate being a legal academic, but while in law school, got increasingly drawn to the intellectual topics of law. Once in the domain of constitutional law, and particularly once I became fascinated with comparing uh, democratic institutional structures in various countries around the world, uh, the topic that we are addressing today became more and more pressing. In 2015, I published a book called Fragile Democracies, which was an account of the democratic regimes that had emerged in the United States, in the world in the post-1989, post-Soviet period, uh, most notably Eastern Europe, but also post-apartheid South Africa, the post-military uh, democratic regimes in, in South America, Central America, and in the Pacific Rim. The thesis of that book was that uh, the difficulty of these countries is that democratic institutions do not just emerge overnight, and you don't have uh, partisan competition, you don't have political parties, you don't have separation of powers, that these are institutional gains which take time. And the argument I made was that while these institutions are developing, uh, it was necessary to forestall a collapse into executive authority because the president, the prime minister, the head of state is always the source of authority that forms first and is most powerful. And uh, the further argument or the really novel part of that book was to say that constitutional courts were emerging as the check on the powerful executive in the post-1989 period. When I finished that book, uh, I was asked, well, is this just true of the post-1989 regimes, or might we say that uh, fragility is an inherent weakness of dem democracies? And is it possible that stable democracies would uh, go through the same pattern of institutional disruption, institutional weakness that we see in the newly emerging ones? 
And this coincided with a great deal of attention that I was paying to the phenomenon of populism uh, as it emerged around the world. And I define populism as a uh, form of elected governance in which elections are reasonably fair and free, but that the governors, the elected head of state, then tries to unwind the institution that institutions that constrain the exercise of power in a functioning democracy. My, argu- my concern was that the same pattern of institutional weakness that was present in the post-1989 democracies was becoming manifest in the older, more stable democracies as they confronted uh, Berlusconi, as they confronted or uh, uh, as they confronted uh, Trump in the United States, then Bolsonaro in Brazil, and uh, that figures like this uh, threatened these longer standing democracies in much the same way that uh, the post-1989 democracies have proved to be weak. So let me just leave it there and and we can get into a discussion. Yeah, you've raised a lot of important points. Um, and one of them was the fragility of democracy. And um, in your first chapter, you talk about economic insecurity, income gap, and financial crisis in Europe and America that undermine democracy somehow. So how, how are these, uh, let's say, factors related to declining democracy? Well, if you look at at the democratic world as it emerged in the 19th and 20th century in primarily Britain and the United States, but then after World War II, very stably in France, Germany, and uh, Western Europe, then Japan, what democracy offered was not just the capacity to participate in the political process to elect the heads of state, but also Uh, I argue, it importantly offered to better people's lives. And I begin the the book by quoting from Franklin Roosevelt's Four Freedoms Address in 1941, in which Roosevelt tied the future of democracy to the ability to lift the people from uh, from certain kinds of fears, from uh, the, and to give them a freedom that they did not enjoy before, and some of the freedoms were political. Some of the freedoms uh, were what we would characterize as civil liberties or human rights. But importantly, he added in there the freedom from want and tied the fate of democracy to the capacity to improve the working standards of people's lives. And the results were clear. Citizens in the stable democratic countries lived better, had longer life expectancy, had more uh, security over their old age, had more prospect for advancement, had more reason to believe that their children would live a better life than they did. And that that began to end at the end of the 20th century. And we can see from the economic data that uh, the living standards of the uh, working classes, the laboring classes in the advanced industrial countries began to decline in real terms and real uh, real dollars gained, uh, earned rather, uh, beginning in the late 1990s. Now, this was a period in which you had, or not late 1990s, I take that back, really uh, starting in the late 1980s and running through uh, the beginnings of the of the 21st century. This was the period of globalization. This was the period in which billions of people in countries like China, India, uh, Vietnam were lifted from poverty. It was a tremendous time of economic gain for the human race, but one group did not do well, and that was the working classes of the advanced countries. Uh, so I argue that the in terms of the timing for the rise of populism, uh, one of the triggering events was this mounting economic insecurity leading up to 2008 and the financial collapse that sort of uh, 
uh, crystallized a sense that uh, people weren't being taken care of, and perhaps the corresponding sense that the big institutional players, the banks and so forth, uh, would always be taken care of by contrast. And uh, you also talk about the demographic change in Europe and America. Do you think migration, multiculturalism, or this demographic change is also uh, given rise to populism or in a way as weakened democracy or the social cohesion of Europe? I think that if you look at the rhetoric of populism in any country, uh, you cannot escape uh, the sense of frustration that people don't feel at home anymore. Now, some of that is inescapable and some of that's inevitable and uh every country that has uh moved forward significantly has been able to include some number of immigrants a uh, small number in japan obviously but very large numbers in countries like the united states or my native argentina or uh, brazil and these countries um have a uh, a fine line to walk because for the people like myself who live in cosmopolitan centers like New York and who travel extensively around the world, the globalization, the multiculturalism is a gain. It's a win, huge win. It makes our lives richer. It means that the restaurants offer better food. It means that uh, there's more interesting music. It means all sorts of gains in our lives. But for people who live in small towns that were dependent upon mining or manufacturing for their sustenance and had a long-term cohesion of the population, um, this is hugely disruptive. It seems like the outsiders are taking their jobs. It seems like if they go to the capital city, whether it be London or Paris, that all of a sudden there are people speaking different languages, that it doesn't feel like they are at home there. And they sense that their elites um, are, not, are, are not perturbed by this at all. Um, one of the striking features of the political domain is that by and large, the major political parties uh, in both Europe and the United States have not wanted to address the immigration issue. Uh, in uh, the American Congress, immigration is known as the third rail of politics. And so they don't address it and they don't have a coherent program for it. And instead, what they do is they leave open the, the field to populists who will clamor about uh, the other, the foreigners, the them. Uh, now, part of this is just strategic posturing by uh, aspiring political actors. They see that there is demand uh, for addressing this sense of estrangement. They see that the uh, major political, the historic political parties don't address it well, and they're off to the races with it. There is some support, and I give this in the book, that the numbers have risen dramatically and in a very short period of time, compounding the sense that nobody's in control, nobody's in charge, nobody's looking out for the domestic population. This, of course, should not be seen or heard as a hatred of immigrants or a fear of immigration. I am myself an immigrant. Uh, I know how vital that is, not just for those who are fortunate enough to, to be able to find a better national setting, but also for the host country in terms of revitalizing its human capital. But the sense of estrangement and isolation from one's own country has not been addressed well by political institutions and the major political actors. Yeah, and, and uh, you're absolutely right that in usually times of economic um, difficulties, it's the rise of populism, and the rise of populism is usually those uh, immigrants that are usually targeted by by the rhetoric of the populace, and I guess we saw it also in in, in during um, the pres presidency of Donald Trump. But we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go ahead. Uh, 
One one element of democratic superiority that you discuss in the book is strong state capacity. So it would be great if you could talk what you mean by strong state capacity. And then when uh, in, in that chapter of the book, you also talk about two important aspects, one of them um, of democracy, one of them is dysfunctioning of legis- uh, legislatures in democratic countries and decline of po- parties in democracies. So two, two reasons that are, let's say, deteriorating the set of democracy. So can you talk uh, about that part of the book, please? Sure. This is a, a complicated argument, but I think it's uh, transparently con- correct once one thinks about it. Um, uh, if you go back to Roosevelt's invocation of the freedom from want, it was basically a claim that democracies could deliver better than other forms of government in uh, raising the standards and the aspirations of their population. And historically, that has been the case. Democracies have been most successful at improving the material conditions of their population over a substantial period of time, and also at delivering uh, more comforts, more security, Um, and not just in terms of social services. Democracies prevailed in the great wars of the 20th century. Democracies have withstood many sorts of challenges. It is a stable and powerful uh, and effective form of governance. Now, the question is, what makes it so? And one of the capacities is the ability to plan for the long term. And planning for the long term begins fundamentally with political parties that have a personhood that outlasts any individual. Political parties are permanent institutions. They are like corporations in the public sphere. And what they do is they offer a program of how to govern. They discipline their legislative members to that program and they try to effectuate that program over a long period of time. They do so by uh, uh, shoring up and giving form to the primacy of the legislature in democratic governance. And it's no coincidence that the American Constitution begins with its Article I, which is the legislative branch, not the executive. And it is the legislature that is the defining feature of British parliamentarism. And so this is a form of stable governance that requires that the legislature be functioning, that it be coherent, and that it be driven forward by a vision. And that all comes together in the role of political parties. Now, how do political parties play this role? Well, the modern political party, as it emerged through the 19th and 20th century, is a mass institution that has a a real organic grounding in civil society. So you have Christian democratic parties, which are based in in church associations. You have uh, social democratic parties, which are based in labor unions. You have uh, parties like the Republican Party in the United States, which had a deep foundation in the small business associations and other types of commercial, local ventures, uh, civic organizations like the Rotaries and the Kiwanis and things of that sort. And you had parallel institutions in Britain, including the Masons and various other forms of of modern evolution of uh, medieval guilds. Now, these institutions created a foundation at the base so that the parties meant something organic. And if we go back in Europe 100 years, 50 years, what we find is that the political parties organized orchestras at the local level. They organized youth camps. They organized newspapers. They had public concerts. They had sports leagues. All of this was a way of tying them to their membership and to the community. That in turn filtered up 
and gave an identity to the parties in, in parliament or in the legislature. What we have today is sort of an, uh, an exaggerated version of what uh, Robert Putnam referred to as bowling alone. That is the atomization of society. I speak in the book about the compounding effect that social media has on this and the dissolution of these mass institutions or these mass organizations. Trade unions have declined. Church attendance has declined. Um, these, these kind of bowling leagues and summer leagues and uh, organized community enterprises have declined. And in that context, it bubbles all the way up to the increasing incapacity of the legislature. And then to this, we add one more feature, which is modern technology. And here, social media plays a very complicating role. Social media allows an individual like Donald Trump to run for president without any connection to an organic party. He was barely a member of the Republican Party. It allows Bernie Sanders to almost uh, prevail in the Democratic Party primary in 2016 over the consummate insider, Hillary Clinton. It allows insurgent figures like Maloney in, in Italy or uh, Le Pen in, in France to find a way to appeal directly to their base, independent of the traditional party structures. And this has a further fragmenting effect on political leadership, and it has a fragmenting effect upon the capacity of the state institutions and democracy just to basically get the job done. And uh, speaking about political parties, um, what factors are in play that um, my, my, that that caused these political parties to decline. I remember some time ago I read this article, uh, which talked about American political parties. That there was a time that they focused on you know passing legislation. They focused on getting things done. But now they have outsourced all those um, main functions, and everything has turned into kind of a turf war between Democrats and Republicans. So what are some 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 factors that caused weakening of political parties? Well, I, I would start with the weakening of the erosion of their base. Yeah. And that's the uh, decline of trade unions, churches, etc. I would then point to their loss of monopoly over the critical functions of moving people into political office. So they don't have control of the nomination process the way that they did. Candidates can run on social media in a way that frees them from party constraints. They don't have the same financial control that they used to. Um, that's certainly true in the United States as a result of some uh, uh, campaign finance reforms, but it's true in every country in which uh, independent forces can now be viable actors in the political process simply as a matter of uh, their command of social media. Um, it takes many forms, but once you don't have the ability to hold uh, some kind of control mechanism over your uh, membership in the legislature, then the party ceases to be the center of activity. So what emerges are political parties that weigh their gains not in terms of what they deliver to their constituencies or not in terms of what legislation they pass, but in terms of voting yay or nay on the program of the executive. They become rallying forces in favor of or against uh, whoever happens to hold the chief executive position. And so you see party cohesion in the United States, as you, as you mentioned it, but it's cohesion. Uh, are we in favor of Trump or against him? Are we in favor of Biden or against him? And there is little capacity in that uh, space to engage in bipartisan uh, dialogue, to engage in compromise, uh, to have working sense of what are we going to get done? Now, some of the 
reasons for this are are sort of hard to unravel. In the United States, we've been living the last 20 years with knife edge elections, that is elections that turn by a point or two uh, across the board where all three branches of government and states themselves are capable of shifting quickly from Democratic to Republican hands and vice versa. In these circumstances, the minority party, the party that is out of office, has every prospect of gaining all the offices. And to do so, they need to be able to point to failure in turn in on the part of the governing coalition. And when that is the stakes, uh, all of a sudden there's more incentive to uh uh, crater the enterprise than there is uh, to build up uh, a collective response to the problems of the day. Um, and uh, the one, one interesting part of the book uh, was was when I read about populism as a form of democratic government with weak institutions, because I never tended to think of a populism as a legitimate form of government. It, it exists, but I didn't tend to think of it. But I really like the way you phrase it. It's a democratic government with weak institutions. What do you mean by that? I mean that when you look at the populist regimes around the world, uh, Orban, uh, uh, Modi, uh, uh, Erdogan, uh, Kaczynski, Bolsonaro when he was in office, Trump when he was in office, these are legitimately elected heads of state. Uh, The only uh, election that I think anybody can seriously contest was the second election of Hugo Chavez, where there may have been some manipulation. But otherwise, these are elections that are held under imperfect conditions. There's often harassment of the opposition. There's, uh, in many countries, uh, jailing of uh, oppositional journalists. There are constraints, but by and large, these are reasonably fair and reasonably free elections where the people have spoken and they have elected X or Y as head of state under the rules that prevail at that time. So I'm not particularly concerned with Trump winning a majority of the electoral college, but not of the popular vote, because that's the rules we've had in the United States for the last couple of hundred years, that that's how we determine who is the president, and he won under the existing rules. Um, in two, in uh, 2016, obviously not in 2020. And under those circumstances, there is a democratic legitimacy to their governance. And so one can't take that away from them. And one makes a mistake by, by minimizing that because it is what gives them their authority and their legitimacy, but it is also what can bring them down, as with Trump and Bolsonaro. It is a source of their weakness that they have to, in some fashion, go back to the well. They have to go back to the population that elected them. What they do once in office is what defines the second part of populism, which is not just that they're democratically elected, but that they are determined to consolidate power in the hands of the supreme elected official and to weaken any sorts of institutional constraints. I define the key to democracy as uh, being repeat play, which means that sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and that it's shown by the rotation in office between the parties, and by limitations on what the majority can do when it is elected, so that the minority does not, if it gets elected the next time, come in and find the entire state uh, disabled or modified in some way that is fundamentally uh, unfair. What the populists tend to look at first is the very same electoral mechanism that is the source of their legitimacy. So almost without exception, they turn on electoral authorities to try to undermine those. We saw that with Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil. We saw that with uh, Kaczynski and Orban in Eastern Europe. We saw that with uh, Erdogan and Modi, we see that in uh, quite clearly in the United States uh, with Donald Trump. 
And we see it now in vivid form in Mexico with uh, Lopez Obrador and his attempt to uh, disable the two independent uh, bodies that have overseen Mexico's transition to real democratic governance. And uh, that then forces a confrontation uh, with these institutions and with protections for those institutions, which oftentimes have to come from the judiciary. And um, chapter five in the book, it's called, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, Cardillas in Command. What do you mean by that? Is, is that Cardillos, a good uh, uh, I'm afraid that your Persian background doesn't uh, take you well into Spanish. Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> a caudillo, or as uh, we would say in Argentina, caudillo, um, is the classic Latin American term for the strong man, for the guy who shows up on horseback, for the for the uh, the general who will deliver us from our woes. And the caudillo is the one who knows how to cut through all the crap and just take the reins and make things happen. And this has been an image in, uh, in an unfortunate image in Latin American uh, political regimes for the entire post-colonial period. And so I compare, uh, uh, and others use this term also, I'd like to think I was the first to apply it to Trump, uh, but I don't know if that's true. Uh, but the term of uh, thinking of these populists as caudillos, uh, uh, you know, it's like the line from the uh, treasure of Sierra Madre, we don't need no stinking badges. Uh, these are folks who come in with the, we don't need no stinking rules and limitations, we'll do what we need to get done and just don't get in our way. And uh, the, uh, the clearest example of this right now is in El Salvador, where you have a young swashbuckler, uh, Bukele, uh, who's barely in his 40s, and who is uh, uh, taking on the gangs there and taking them on in ways that are manifestly violent, uh, illegal, and uh it must be said, effective. He's uh, modeled himself on Duterte from the Philippines, and um, he is tremendously popular because he has reconquered the public space for ordinary citizens by taking on violent drug gangs and doing so in ways that stretch or defy the boundaries of law. And this image is quite familiar, as you mentioned. I, a, a lot of populists or authoritarians have used the image of themselves in their propaganda posters, riding on a horse, um, holding a flag, and usually, um, you know, cutting corners to get things done in ways that are controversial. And in Russia, even shirtless. Yeah, yeah. And what what threats does? this sort of populism posed to democracy? Well, the threat is that they will hollow out the institutions of democracy completely. And by that, uh, I mean that uh, there will be elections in name, but not in fact, that there will be uh, liberties offered to the majority of citizens, but not to all, uh, that there will be an increasing turn to a majoritarian ethos that has little tolerance for uh, minorities of any kind, dissidents of any kind. And I think the example that, uh, that we see uh, most clearly today is in India under Modi, where uh, a very popular leader, which huge electoral support, has been moving against uh, the electoral institutions, has been moving against uh, the capacity of the Congress to function against him, uh, denying the opposition parties uh, their uh, credentials, as it were, under the particular uh, parliamentary rules of, of India, denying to Muslims many sorts of right, trying to re-register citizens to exclude Muslims, 
uh, imposing a state of siege in the only uh, Muslim-majority state of India, Kashmir. So you see what this looks like, and the threat is that although in a plebiscitary sense they remain popular, uh, their popularity rests heavily on uh, an anti-democratic ethos. Uh, we, we have talked about the problem, but you also talk about um, ways to defend democracy, to protect democracy from authoritarian populism uh, by, by a, uh, administration of, uh, uh, sorry, why are criminal and, and, and administrative law mechanisms how can that be done? Well, so one of the, uh, I think, interesting observations of the book is just how frequent and central corruption scandals are with regard to populist governance. And I, I argue that when institutions get weakened, then you have more and more, you, what you substitute is more and more individual discretionary authority. And as I tell my, my students, uh, the first rule of life, and the only one I know of that's always true, is that anybody who's a gatekeeper will become a toll collector. And the, uh, the, the temptation to, uh, to dip into the funds of the state, either for personal enrichment or for political aggrandizement, is seems to be a constant in these populist regimes, which means that they often find themselves on the wrong side of well-established legal constraints on uh, on corruption. And so one of the things I argue is a basically an Al Capone type strategy that uh, these individuals can't be held legally accountable for being bad leaders, for having bad ideas without subordinating democratic principles and the, the, the fundamental principle that the majority gets to select the head of state. But they can be held accountable for their transgressions, which are tied into uh, the way they govern. And I talk about places like South Africa, where Zuma was finally held to account over ordinary corruption, or Argentina, where Christina Kirshner had to leave uh, the presidency under uh, constant accusation and indictment uh, for corruption. Uh, the background corruption story with Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, and so I hold out the prospect that the ordinary features of law are what may constrain the populace. Now, this is a, a, in part an attack or a, uh, a refinement or a critique, you can pick your term, of my prior book, Fragile Democracies, where I thought that constitutional law and constitutional courts uh, could be the chief obstacle to the populace undermining democracy. And unfortunately, um, I was not the only one uh, who realized that because it seems that the um, populace themselves understood uh, understood this. Um, and what happened uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, I, I had to turn my phone off. Forgot to do that. Uh, what, ha <laughs> what happened in, uh, 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 in country after country, in Hungary is the, the best example, but we could go through uh, Poland, and we could go through uh, Turkey and, and you know, the Czech Republic and many, many places. Um, what happened was that the constitutional courts had authority because they were independent of the entire political structure. And uh, that also made them vulnerable. And the populace found that they were able to compel retirements or they were able to force the individuals uh, to back uh, to back down, the, the judges to back down. And so I started to wonder about the operation of ordinary law. And uh, that leads to uh, 
uh, many aspects of criminal law and administrative law as a mechanism to restrain populism. Now, this is a this is a difficult, difficult proposition, which we're living through right now in the United States with the prosecution of Donald Trump, because if it looks like the winner in the last election is being uh, threatened with criminal prosecution or jail uh, for his views or for his governance style, that's the end of democracy. That's where all of a sudden it becomes inconceivable that any party will think, oh, I cede office and, uh, and that's the end for me. I will be prosecuted. This is what killed many of the new democracies in Africa in the post-colonial period that you left office only dead or fleeing the country in the middle of the night. And there has to be a way of holding uh, these elected officials to legal accountability while at the same time uh, not making it look like one regime prosecutes the one that came before so as to prevent it from seizing office again. And uh, I'm, I'm really interested also in how political parties try to manipulate election mechanism for partisan benefit. We, we, we saw an attempt to do that in 2020 election in the United States and Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. So how, how do political parties manipulate election mechanisms and how can we save election mechanisms through bipartisan commitments that you discuss in the book? Well, the chief bipartisan commitment is that... Uh, Uh, I'm in charge today, but you may be in charge tomorrow. So it's a uh, it's a fear factor. It's tit for tat. And I know that if I go too far today, then you will come after me tomorrow. If I pack the courts today, then the next time you get a majority, you will pack them even more. And so there tends to be an acceptance that when elections are unknown, the outcomes are unknown, and everybody's playing within the same basic framework that uh, you don't want to, you have a tacit understanding not to uh, go too far. Robert Axelrod described this as tit for tat uh, quite famously in game theory, and that's basically what it is. You can watch what the other's doing, and you can see that they're acting within the bounds of of reasoned uh, disagreement. Um, what happens when the uh, the adversary becomes an existential enemy is that those rules no longer apply. And so you win and you try to do everything you can. And I use uh, the expression from American basketball, of one and done uh, to describe this. One and done was the practice of uh, requiring uh, uh, prospective professional basketball players to spend one year in college uh, as part of a team. And so they would go to the university with a commitment of only one year and only to themselves being as dramatically effective as possible. And the one and done strategy means that you have no tomorrow, that you don't care about tomorrow it's all over. In politics, that means something like Hugo Chavez being unable to win the uh, mayoral elections in Caracas. And so revising the political structure of Venezuela so that the mayor of Caracas would have effectively no power. And that is repeated in the United States where we saw Republicans in states like North Carolina and Wisconsin upon losing the governorship, but still controlling the legislature, passing legislation that basically neutered the governor, not because they thought the governor was a bad office, but because they didn't hold it anymore. And they were determined to get whatever they could done in the immediate term, regardless of whether it created a stable or unstable form of governance. So I think that that's the strategy that we are seeing at the political domain. It's the shortening of the time frame. Democracy needs a long time horizon. It needs the uh, the understanding that whatever is going on today is only temporary. That there are 
it will be subject to repeat contestation. And that's what's been lost in the populist era. The populists always speak in the name of the people, not of the country, not in terms of their, their party, but of the people. And the people is everybody who's with me, and those who are outside are against, and they are the enemy. And the enemy is the invitation to a destruction of our values and a destruction of everything we stand for. When politics becomes existential, you don't have, you can't have a commitment to repeat play. And uh, one sort of a hypothetical question, how do you, well, first part is not that much hypothetical, but how can we save democracies from this political fragmentation and breakdown? But then the second part, which is more hypothetical, is how do you see the next, say, five or six years, the state of politics in the United States? Do you feel that there's fertile ground for the rise of populism again? Well, on the first part, um, I tend to think that uh, populism is defined, as I said, and as you noted earlier, by democratic election with weak institutions. And uh, it's very hard to control who's going to win elections, but it is important to protect institutions. And so in the last uh, parts of the book where I discuss areas of um, of, uh, of protection or areas of reform where some protection may be had, I talk mostly about ways of shoring up uh, institutions. And it's important to realize that the political system is not the only domain in which uh, you have the, a need for stable institutions. Um, I wrote uh, an editorial piece uh, a year or so ago uh, with former Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Robert Rubin, in which we argued that uh, the attack on the political institutions of the United States is not only bad for democracy, but it's bad for the United States as an economic leader in the world because the economic leadership of the United States depends upon uh, its stability as uh, an institutional haven for hard currency, for non-violation of property rights, for all sorts of stabilizing mechanisms that are critical to the central economic role the United States plays. And it was interesting that in Michigan, in 2000, in 2020, when Donald Trump was making the concerted attack on the uh, institutional mechanisms for the conduct of elections in Michigan, that the state business leaders uh, finally put a halt to it. They finally interceded and said, uh, we cannot allow this kind of rampant institutional destruction because we cannot uh, persevere as in our economic role uh, if the institutions of the United States are weak. So some of this turns on finding ways of shoring up uh, institutions. Uh, one of the uh, perhaps most controversial uh, points I make is that we should dramatically and hugely uh, liberalize the ability of political parties to raise money as opposed to candidates. And I propose taking basically contribution limits off of political parties in exchange for transparency on their disclosures. Um, and the reason for this is that right now we have squeezed the money out of political parties and put it either in the hands of uh, lone venture uh, candidates, such as a Donald Trump, or in the hands of super PACs and these third part, third uh, uh, form uh, entities that have no political accountability and tend to be the voices of the most extreme uh, views in our political system. 
so these are the kinds of things that one can think about if you're persuaded that institutional weakness is the critical issue uh, in the face of populism. There are other mechanisms that cut in different directions, but uh, mechanisms to try to restore state competence, the ability of the state just to get things done. Uh, to give an example, I was in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago, and it was announced that the uh, uh, environmental impact uh, uh, process for the complete uh, renovation of their historic train station, Union Station, had finally been completed. Now we are in 2023, and the story went on to say that the environmental review process had begun in 2016. That is, it took seven years to get that phase of the project done to be followed by the planning pro process, which was now projected to take five years before the building process could even be contemplated. And so we're talking about 20, 30 years to get something done. Um, that's intolerable. That just gives a sense of government being able at best to create a hole in the ground. And most often, not even that, just a lot of paperwork. Um, as to the second part of your question, yes, this is, uh, this is not going away easily. Uh, it is true that... Uh, Bolsonaro lost in his election. It is true that Erdogan was nearly defeated. We have important decisions in uh, electoral decisions coming uh, later this year in Poland and in Argentina. Uh, but the fact remains that uh, the leading individual candidate for the presidency in the United States is Donald Trump, and he's running unrepentant on uh, he has to get back to finish the job of getting his enemies. Uh, and this is a terribly uh, terrifying uh, set of events. Uh, before we end this conversation, uh, is there any project or any other work uh, you're currently, any other book you're currently working on? Well, I've started to think about the third book uh, in the series between Fragile Democracies and Democracy Unmoored. Uh, which will be a little more focused on law uh, than uh, than democracy on Ward was, and will be, I think, more directed to the way that legal institutions frame democratic possibility with a heavier focus on the United States than uh, my previous books. Uh, but that's in the earliest, earliest stage. I just finished this one, and... Uh, uh, it's there are some authors who can go from one book to the next without putting the pen down. I'm working on some articles right now. I'm going to take a little bit of time to let the ideas uh, germinate a bit. Professor Samuel Isaacroff, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk with us on New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me here.